0: Welcome to week 46 of 60 Weeks, 60 Books. It hardly seems possible that we are now entering the countdown for the final 15 books in this series. I was about to launch into a pin of praise for David Mitchell's historical novel, The Thousand Autumns of Jacob de Zoet, but I realised mid-week that I was slightly out of sync and needed instead to slot in the memory of a play that I saw twice some 14 years ago, once with my family in London and some months later whilst on a school trip to Stratford at the RSC. Both excellent productions. It is time for a look at The Winter's Tale, one of Shakespeare's later plays, first performed according to Simon Foreman, doctor, astrologer and avid playgoer in 1611. He recorded that it played at the Globe, and then we have records to suggest it was put on at the court of King James later that year. The court must have liked it, for it was revived as an entertainment during the celebrations of one of James's daughters' wedding a couple of years later. I came to the plot of The Winter's Tale as a Child through The Tales from Shakespeare by Charles and Mary Lamb. It was the plot I loved best of all the tales, and the charm that it wove then has survived seeing three productions, reading the play numerous times at school and university, as well as paring it down for a school production which sadly I never saw, as I left the school where it was to be performed to move to Belgium. More on that in the blog, that reading writing thing. I love this play not simply for its quotable lines, although it has those plenty, but for its structure and most of all its characters, for also its moods and shifts and its magical fairy tale ending. As with other late plays by Shakespeare, Winter's tale includes features of mask, a type of courtly hybrid dance, Performance involving costumes, disguise and allegorical illusion that evolved in the sumptuous display first celebrated in the courts of Burgundy in the 14th and 15th centuries, spreading across European courts of, for example, France, Bohemia and England. Both Elizabeth I and her successor James loved lavish entertainments and in James's time the mask was hugely fashionable. The play opens in Sicily at the court of Leontes. He and his wife Hermione have had with them as a guest for months King Polixenes of Bohemia, childhood friend of Leontes. Polixenes feels he now must return home. When Leontes tries to persuade Polixenes to stay, the Bohemian king refuses, but then Leontes urges Hermione, his queen, to bring to bear her powers of persuasion. Polixenes agrees to extend his visit a little, and somehow this unleashes a monstrous, unquellable jealousy in Leontes. First performed almost a decade after Othello, which I will be visiting in a future podcast, The Winter's Tale shows a man in the grip of an immense and terrible delusion. Shakespeare has moved beyond the need for any external agent to produce Leontes' morbid, Frenzied state. There is no Iago creating a green eyed invasive beast that will bring destruction. Leontes' state is entirely self generated and all the more frightening. Once again, Shakespeare, well before any categorization or creation of an academic discipline of psychology, has managed to create in Leontes a perfect rendition of an extreme psychological disorder, rare but definitely existent. Leontes is irrational, vicious, wildly destructive in his madness. First, he orders one of his closest courtiers, Camillo, to poison Polixenes. Rather than obey the mad king, Camillo confesses this plot to Polixenes, helps the Bohemian king escape, and goes into exile with him, knowing that if he remains in Sicily, Leontes will order his death. But this leaves Queen Hermione vulnerable. Isolated, imprisoned, forbidden from seeing her young son, Mamilius, her only advocate at court appears to be her fearless waiting woman, Paulina. Both Hermione and Paulina are two of Shakespeare's finest women characters. Virtuous, honourable, full of integrity and dignity, Hermione is blindsided by her husband's insistence that the child she is carrying must be Polixenes' child. She loves her husband, has done his bidding in asking Polixenes to stay longer in Sicily, and now finds herself grappling with the horror of her husband's madness and its dire consequences. For, separated from his mother, his father in a state of terrible torment and fury, Mamilius's world has been shattered, and he himself, a sweet and charming child, can only pine for the stability and calm that have now been shattered. Unable to eat, to sleep, the child falls grievously ill. Leontes sends two courtiers to the oracle at Delphus. He will accept the word of the oracle regarding his wife's innocence, he claims. Hermione gives birth to a daughter, Paulina now shows her mettle. She takes the child to Leontes in an attempt to break through his madness by showing him this embodiment of innocence, by asserting the Queen's goodness, honesty and virtue. In a tragicomic scene, we see Paulina challenge Leontes in the company of various courtiers, including her ineffectual husband, Antigonus, one of Leontes' oldest and most reliable men. At one point, Leontes asserts that Antigonus should be hanged for failing to stay his wife's tongue, and Antigonus wryly replies that if every man were hanged for this particular fault, Leontes would have no subjects left in all Sicily. Demonstrating her courage and determination, Paulina tells Leontes clearly that he is unhinged, irrational, unjust, She is a woman speaking the truth where the men around him shrink from this level of honesty. She leaves but does not take the baby with her, having placed it in the arms of her husband. Leontes instructs his ageing courtier to take the child and abandon it in an exposed place for wild beasts to devour. Torn between his devotion to Leontes and his own humane impulses, Antigonus leaves Sicily with the child. Leontes then puts Hermione on trial for treason and adultery. In heart rending speeches, Hermione both embodies and declares her integrity, her innocence, and her grief at the catastrophe that has befallen her, the loss of her children, the loss of her lord's esteem and love. She is full of dignity. The two courtiers return in the midst of these proceedings with the answer from the Oracle which absolutely establishes Hermione's virtue, Polixene's blamelessness, Camilla's loyalty, the legitimacy of the baby and promises that Leontes will live without an heir if that which is lost is not found. Leontes refuses to believe the oracle. In a frenzy, he declares its response to be a lie and demands that the trial continue. But just at that moment, in comes a servant with devastating news for both king and queen. Mamilius, fatally weakened by the disintegration of his parents' marriage and the disruption of his world, has died. And by now, Antigonus has removed the baby irrevocably, Until she is recovered, Sicily must be without an heir. Hermione collapses and is carried out. Stunned by these calamities, Leontes finally recovers his grip on reality and begins to understand what damage he has wrought. His grief only deepened when Paulina returns to announce Hermione's death. The scene ends with Leontes broken, and are distraught. But what of the baby? Act three ends with a wondrous scene, both terrible and ridiculous, an indication of what is past and what is to come. Antigonus lands on the coast of Bohemia, a geographical impossibility as Bohemia has been landlocked since it came into being, but this is Shakespeare's Geography. The night before, Antigonus has had a mysterious dream, with, as he thinks, the ghost of Hermione visiting him, first to tell him that he must name the baby Perdita, Lost One, and leave her on Bohemia's non-existent shores, and second as a punishment for having followed Leontes' crazed instructions, telling him he will never see his wife Paulina again. Antigonus tries to dismiss the dream. He says, dreams are toys, linking back to the confrontation where Hermione is trying to defend herself against Leontes' raging demons. She says, my life lies in the level of your dreams, which I'll lay down. She is ready to die, but she warns Leontes that it is his feverish imaginings which has brought her to this perilous state. Leontes counters, with your actions are my dreams. He is unable to sleep because his conviction that Hermione has betrayed him has so consumed him, but he cannot perceive the irony in his own words. His dreams are false, and just that. Illusions, fabrications, dreams. Antigonus' dream however is prophetic the captain of his ship has warned him the day is bleak and blustery he fears the heavens are angry with a vessel its crew and its courtly passengers antigonus lays the baby down the storm breaks and roused by the thunder a bear appears readers of the play can then enjoy that most delightful of stage directions exit antigonus pursued by a bear The tone of the place, which is completely at this point, it is abrupt and ludicrous with the arrival of the rustics, the ageing shepherd and his clueless son. As the storm abates, the old shepherd appears on stage in search of two lost sheep, discovers the baby and is joined by his son, who reports the loss of the ship with all hands and the destruction of Antigonus at the paws of the bear, who has rendered the old courtier limb from limb before devouring him. The rustics discover alongside the baby wrapped in rich robes a box of gold and take both home. The young shepherd promising to stop and give the remains of the bear's dinner a decent burial. Pinned to the robes of the baby is a note with the single word perdita. The final part of the play, the last two acts, are opened by time an allegorical figure who reports that 16 years have passed, that Perdita is now grown, as is Prince Florizel, son of Polixenes, king of Bohemia, and that Leontes has spent his time in penitence. There is a subplot involving Camillo and Polixenes, but more interesting are Perdita and the peddler and hoodwinking thief Autolycus autolycus is a trickster a messenger and a meddler whose interventions allow an unraveling of the tale so that at just the right time the shepherd and his son are able to reveal the truth of perdita's origins she is no modest shepherdess but was clearly a babe of noble birth and thus formerly against polixene's wishes but now in line with them an eligible bride for the young prince florizel Perdita is recognisably one of Shakespeare's righteous young women, echoing Cordelia or Brutus's wife Portia, endowed with innate nobility and elegance of mind and expression. Her diction is complex, Latinate, educated despite being raised by the dimwitted shepherd and alongside his even dimmer son. She knows all the flowers and their meanings. She seems at times to be Ophelia's balanced, sane cousin, not set adrift by the murder of her father and the cruelty of her lover, but raised in a protected paradise. Gardens and flowers were always important to Shakespeare from the bank of time in Eglantine where Titania sleeps to the metaphors of a rank unweeded garden to embody the state of Denmark or the gardeners talking of growing apricots alongside their discussion of the wars between their royal superiors and Richard II. The sheep-shearing scene in Winter's Tale is deliberately bucolic, a joyful interlude and that opportunity for pastoral mask, but it is also that symbol that all will be well, that after the darkness, light and life and spring beckon. The final embodiment of this is that elegant, amazing, brilliant scene at the very end of the play. When I first read the Lamb's retelling of the story, I wondered at it. The cast reassembles in Sicily. Perdita and Florizel have been helped to reach Sicily by Camillo, once Polixenes has tried to break them apart, followed by both a shepherd and his son, and then, in hot pursuit, Polixenes determined not to allow his son to marry this commoner. However, Perdita's identity is revealed, Leontes recovers his lost daughter, and to celebrate, at the very end of the play, an aged Paulina, no less spiky, offers to display a statue of Hermione made by a great Italian master so that Perdita might know a little, at least the appearance, of her lost mother. The statue is unveiled and amazes the court with its likeness to Hermione. And it amazes, of course, the old kings, Leontes and Polixenes, Then Paulina makes the statue move to slow and stately music what becomes, what seems stone, becomes flesh. And Hermione, alive, is restored to a penitent and awed Leontes. Then Paulina brings Perdita forward, bids her kneel, and turns to her royal mistress and dearest friends to say the magical words our perdita is found. Having seen the play performed, those final minutes of reconciliation and love are, I think, at once incredibly difficult to pull off and yet almost impossible to get wrong. Those minutes are at the heart of why this play, of all Shakespeare's plays, is probably my favourite. The first three acts are so achingly terrible, more so, I think, when you know the play and understand the extent of the trauma and consequences of Leonti's madness. He has lain waste to everything that he loves and is left in a desolation, utterly bereft. The play could end there, yet another tragedy where the destructive force of human nature is laid bare for the audience. Instead, we have... Redemption, reunion, rejoicing, the natural order restored. Leontes' atonement and suffering are at an end. Hermione and Paulina rewarded for their constancy and devotion and the young prince and princess recognised and allowed to be a couple. There is comfort and reassurance that however terrible the grief and horror, there is also the capacity for joy for simplicity and innocence to win. Much as my young gory younger self loved the tragedies, especially the gruesomely high body count of Hamlet, for example, the older I am, the possibility of forgiveness, of reconciliation, and the happiness of coming into harbour after a long and difficult journey becomes more resonant. Next week, I will return, as planned, to the Thousand Autumns of Jacob de with its amazing convolutions and definitely some gruesome, gory pleasures. See you then.